Any of you guys work jigsaw puzzles? Like to work them? My mother loves them. She's 89 years old, and you can throw one out in front of her, and before you can get the pieces spread out, she'll have four or five of them that goes together. It, it, it just amazes me. And I saw something the other day that I'm going to buy for her, and it's a two-sided one. Have you ever seen one with a picture on both sides? And, and, I, and it, I thought about it, and it kind of applied to this passage tonight that we're dealing with on the millennium. Because on a regular puzzle, when you throw it out, you know what the picture is. You turn the pieces up, and when you finish, you got the picture that was there. But on a two-sided puzzle, what you end up with is what you decided you were going to work. You had to make a decision in the beginning which way you were going to go. And then you try to make those pieces fit and try to make everything flow. Revelation 20 is a lot like a two-sided jigsaw puzzle with some of the pieces gone in that the position you take in the beginning flows you through it and how you're going to get there. And and any interpretation of what this millennial period means, any one individual's interpretation depends solely on which way they got the pieces turned. And so, and we're going to look at the three major views tonight just a little bit and, and, and talk about this just a little bit. But the key to interpreting that then is, is, under, is, is what is your approach? What do you think about the millennium? Because what we're going to see in chapter 20, we're going to see a good bit of action between, between Jesus and Satan and the rest of the world and what's going on. Because last week we had Armageddon, we had the final battle, we had everybody defeated. So right now we have Jesus and the saints and, and understanding what's going to happen from this point. And, and the word millennium comes from the term 1,000, and in in verses 2 through 7, 1,000 is mentioned six times. So it's not something we can read over or disregard or ignore, because if the writer put it in there that many times, 1,000 means something in in, in this position, and we have to take a position on it and and see what, you know, we come to. Now, the millennial kingdom is scriptural. You see a lot of different things in scripture that, that point to it. One of them is in Matthew 19 and 28. It said, And I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses and brothers. And he's talking to the apostles there. But he says, When all things come together, and and then the fact that they will reign becomes important in just a minute as well. Then also, in Acts 3... 19 and 21, he said, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In verse 20, And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must return in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he had promised long ago through the holy prophets. And then in Acts 3 and 19, just these are just some verses that, that just really nail down the fact that, uh, that the millennial kingdom is something we have to deal with. It's an actuality. And in, in Acts uh, 3 and 19, he said, Repent then and turn. Oh, that's the one I just read. He must remain in heaven until he comes. So we have these passages, and the other one is one in Ephesians 10. It talks about it as well. So the millennial kingdom is an actual event that we have to deal with when we look at this passage. So it's not if there's a millennium, but it's how we get there and what it looks like. And we're going to kind of look at those views tonight as we move through here just a little bit. 
There's really three major views. Really two of them's in the same court and one of them's in the other court. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I want us to get a handle on it before we move into the passage. There's a premillennial view and a postmillennial view and what they call an amillennial view. Well, pre, pre is about the simplest one, and pre is where most people are now, particularly Southern Baptists. And that basically just flows along the line. At some point in time, the tribulation will start. Somewhere in that seven years, people will be raptured where it's beginning, mid, or end. We've all got different views on that. At the end of that time, we saw last week in 19, you'll have the final battle. Jesus returns, and you have the thousand-year reign. Can't get much simpler than that. That's, that's where that... Um, that view comes from, and it's very simple and very easy to embrace, and it's a more popular view now, even though it it didn't come in really to to standard too much to, to a couple hundred years ago. Post and and what happens in the in the premillennial? It sees Jesus Christ coming back when the world's at its worst. You're right at the end of tribulation. It can't get any worse. We saw last week they're coming. The world is evil. It's coming against Israel. So Jesus comes back when it's worst. Post-millennials see Jesus coming back at the end of thousand years. They see him coming back when the world's at its best, when the world is, is a world that's highly Christianized. They see the church is ushering in the millennium. And what I mean by that is they see the, uh, the gospel continuing to spread and saturate the world to a point someday before the world is, is, is godly enough for a thousand-year millennium, that, and, and it'll be a, almost a utopian society. And, and, and at the end of that time, Jesus will come back. And, you know, we talked a little bit last week about thinking we were in a utopian society in the early part of this last century with this country. Well, that view has died over the last hundred years because the world's getting worse. Now, the gospel is spreading, particularly in Asia and South American places like that, and the gospel is still spreading rapidly in the world. But the world is populating very quickly, and the world's getting worse. So that view kind of has its issues. And that view also, along with the amillennial view we talked about just a minute, they, in order for the church to bring the millennium in, in order for the gospel to spread, they see Satan as having to been bound at the cross. In other words, at Calvary, when Christ died and defeated death and rose again, they say that Satan was bound at that time. In other words, he's limited. But, but Scripture don't point to that when you look at that. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But that's where your post-millennial view pretty much is, that he'll come at the end of the thousand years. And then the amillennial view, of course, is a, is a view that, that, that it's in, its, in its terms says there is no millennium. I mean, that's basically what it means. But, but that's, not, that's not the case because they... Uh, they they believe in a kingdom. They see a kingdom. And the difference in their view is they say we're living out the millennium right now. They see the millennium as from when Christ died the first came the first time until he comes again. They see the number one thousand as symbolic. It's whatever how many years it takes. And by the way, the post also see the number one thousand as more symbolic. It could be a thousand years, could be five thousand, could be five hundred. So our millennial view sees it that way. They believe we are in the kingdom. So, but we also run into the same problem with them because they believe Satan was also bound. And so when you start looking at that, here's what you get into with, with, with that passage. When you start looking at passages like Acts 3, and, it, and, and that's where uh, 
Ananias and Sapphira lied about the money. And, you know, and he said to him, he said, why has Satan so filled you that you lied to the Holy Spirit? So you have, you have him being, Satan being blamed for putting Ananias in that position. Second Corinthians 2.11 said he schemes against believers. Ephesians 6.11, what's in chapter 6 of Ephesians? The armor of God. It talks all about being prepared, else the devil will defeat us in this world. 2 Corinthians 12 and 7 and Ephesians 4:27 talks about attacking believers. Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh. And the other one says, don't give Satan a foothold. And 1 Peter 5, 8 is the most famous. What, anybody know what 1 Peter 5, 8 is? Satan is like what? A roaring lion looking that he may devour. It's kind of hard for me to see Satan as bound you know, when you see those verses now, is he restricted? Yes, he's restricted in this world. He can only do what God will let him do. We saw that when Jesus cast out demons. We see that in the Old Testament in Job. He told, he told Satan, he said, have your way with him, but don't hurt him. Don't kill him. And so God has him restricted, but he is all-powerful. And so to say that he was bound kind of puts a light on, on those two versions there that make you wonder how that's supposed to work out. Now, let me say this about those three views before we kind of dig into the Scripture. All of those views have very strong theological points in places, and they have weak points. And all those views are Bible. It could be any one of the three in, in any form, because like I said, some of the pieces are missing. You never get enough pieces to have a full, and it doesn't really matter, because in the end, Jesus is going to come out on top on this. There are also points that you don't draw swords over. There's no sense in Cliff and I going to war over a theological point about the millennial view because in the end we're both going to be with Jesus and he's going to go, you two need to get over this. I mean, so it's not something that affects our theology. It's not something that affects, should affect our relationships with other Christians. It's just some different views and different avenues of how we'll get there, how the millennium plays out. And, and as long as they're not theological and as long as they don't take away from who Jesus Christ is, there's not an issue with them. So they're not something you draw swords over at all. And so my personal position, I'm, I'm pretty much pre. Uh, and the main reason is not because I like it any better. And I don't think them, I think the text fits pre. I think the text is chronologically progressive. In other words, it's moving towards something and it makes sense to me. But you know, you hold your views. Strongly, and you understand them, but you hold them loosely enough that God can show you're wrong sometimes. And if He does, that's fine. But I think some of these things in Revelation we're never going to know until we get there, and and that's fine. But it's fun to study them, and we're promised a blessing for studying Revelation. And I think there's 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 a lot of uh, strength that comes out of reading and studying this book if we can learn to be comfortable with the things we don't know for sure. And and so that's one of the the things we look at today. We're in Revelation 20. Uh, let me get back over here where we need to be. Several things going on here as we look at this, and uh, you know, and 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 as as Jesus is playing out this final final couple of scenes here. Let's look at verses one through ten, and then if we get through, we'll move on from there if we have time. And he said, "I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain." He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and locked him, sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. 
I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw that the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part of the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God's they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And he said, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, he will go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented, tormented day and night forever and ever. So when you start looking at this passage right after this, this major battle, he said, I see an angel coming down from heaven. Now if you go back to chapter 9, there's an angel came down also with the key to the abyss. Anybody remember what that angel did? He opened the abyss up, but what did he do? He released something out of it. So now you see, coming back, he's going to imprison something. He's going to put Satan in. So as you're building in those chapters through Revelation through 7 up to about 8, 16 or 17, you see all this progression, particularly in chapter 12. You see Satan coming to earth. You see him trying to kill the child. You see him fading. You see him thrown to earth and deceiving. Chapter 20, you see all that going in reverse as you look at it in just a minute. So you have this angel coming down out of heaven, having the key and holding in his great hand a great chain. Some writers make a comment on that, that, that why would he say that great chain? But it's just to say that the devil is so powerful that it takes a mighty force to contain him. Because there's nothing any more powerful than him, than Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that And when we're in this. And he says, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or in Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Isn't it ironic he used exactly the same title here as he used in chapter 12? 12, 12.9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So what's happening in here, the writer's making sure you understand this is exactly the same enemy we're fighting. He was thrown to earth. He's deceived the nations. But now he's captive and he's been put in the abyss. And he bound for a thousand years. Now, see, here we get into some linear Now, the abyss is not the final home. It's not the final place of punishment that he's going to put him in. And we'll see that in a few minutes. After that, he must be set free for a short time. There's not a statement anywhere in Scripture. Yes, ma'am. Scripture does not address it. Absolutely no reason whatsoever. There's no biblical reference to it. Most commentators say it's simply to prove that even after a thousand years of living with rule with God, living in a society where he has no influence because he's locked away, living in a society that's near perfect, when they let him out, humanity will still turn back to evilness, and they'll still turn back and be deceived. They say, I, I assume that would be a good way to look at that. I mean, and, and, and that is very, it's just, it's just one of those passages that's very commentated on, but there's no absolute facts on it. But the one thing that he, one of the writers points out, and he said, if you go to Romans 1, 18 through 20, he said the, the problem with unsaved people 
or a lack of salvation is never about lack of knowledge. It's about love of sin. So, so our nature to love sin is always going to be that way. And even after a thousand years when we see in a minute, there's going to be thousands and millions of people that follow him. But it doesn't say why. I've looked and looked, and commentators just don't touch it. There's, there's nothing there to tell you why. It seems counterproductive, doesn't it? <laughs> but I think you have to think, in all this time on earth, we've been influenced by Satan and evil. Well, this thousand years, they aren't. So even a free will person, there's no influence there. But, but it's to come back and say, all right, you have a choice. Kind of shoots a hole in predestination, in my opinion. We won't go there tonight. So, <laughs> but, but to give people the opportunity to say which way you want to go. And, and many of them choose him. But now he says he does deceive. So, you know, he's an angel you know, of light. I mean, he, he does those type things when we start digging into this. And then he said, and, and so that's what happens with Satan. Then he says in verse 4, I, thought, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Now, we saw that in the passage in a minute ago when he was talking to the apostles. If you go back to Daniel, I think 7, 9, he talks about the leaders of the tribes in those days. So I'm assuming in that, and most commentators from what i found, says that's leaders of Israel, you know, the, the more prominent people sitting on those thrones will be seated because there's several verse, verses in Scripture that talk about them reigning with him and, and, and judging with him. And then he said, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. Now, we, and of course, we see about the beheading, and, and most people say that is the, resur- not, uh, the martyred saints out of the tribulation. Because they talk about beheading, and the reason John probably used that, because in Roman times in that day, beheading was the most logical way to execute someone. They had crucifixion and some of the, the things that were done, but most of that had died out. If you were a Roman citizen or somebody had much status, if you were convicted of a death penalty, they beheaded you. But it appears in this passage here that he's talking about the martyred saints of the tribulation. If you have that premillennial view like that, and the tribula- you know, if you have another view, it comes out different. So I told you I'm pre, and that's kind of where I am with it. But I'm, I'm not telling you that I'm absolutely right on it. And it said, because they had, uh, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on the foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this is where it gets tricky. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, depending on where you see the rapture determines how we read this passage, I think. To me, when he talks about them coming to life, I see the rest of the church is already raptured before or mid-trib, at least. And even at the end, if it did, they're done raptured. And then these people who died during the tribulation died after the rapture, probably. That's the reason I hold to a, to a rapture before the tribulation starts. That's my view, okay? I think that solves the problem. Because if you rapture everybody out, then you're dealing with nothing but lost people on earth. And a lot of those people are saved during that time and killed and beheaded. So they die, but there hasn't been another resurrection. And at the end, because they stood the test of time for those seven years, God ra- resurrects them or raptures them and brings them in to reign with him. That's how I read that text. I have no idea. Going, now you're talking about going, now, now shoot that by me again. End of the thousand years. 
Well, but the beheaded saints, you just, you just read in here, it said, because they had not worshipped the beast or took the image and not received his mark. So they turned to Christ instead of the beast. Now, I read it as during tribulation. I see this as tribulation saints. In other words, those people that got up that morning and said, we missed it. We, they was right and we was wrong. And they get saved. Because, you know, it, it talks about that. And then those people, when Satan comes around and says, you will, you will, you will take my mark, you will pay homage, you will worship me, and they say, no, they're killed. That's how I read it, Wayne. I mean, now, and again, it's not something that I draw swords with you over because in the end, it all works out. <laughs> but it's fun to talk about and fun to look at. But that's still a pretty basic view. Yes, ma'am. That could be because there is a remnant. It could very well be all Jew. I mean, because there's nothing to, because it talks about saving that remnant. But there's going to be a lot of people on, let's just say if the rapture happened tomorrow, there would be a ton of people in this old world not saved. Now, most of them probably wouldn't get saved, but some of them would. Some of them would, that had been hearing the message, had been, some of them would. So, whether it be Jew or not Jew. And again, that gets into how you read some of these passages in Revelation. When you go back and start interpreting those chapters after chapter, after chapter three, when you decide up front what your view is, that's how you end up where you want to go at the end. So, the, you can, you can take a number of different courses through, through Revelation as, and, it kind of makes me wonder when Jesus spoke in chapter 19 and slaughtered everybody that he could just easily kill everybody in the world and wouldn't save. So, you know, again, it's one of those things, <laughs> it's one of those things that's hard to, hard to put a handle on. But I think the main thing I want to come out of this with is there is a millennial kingdom of some sort. There is a thousand years. It very well could be that we're in that thousand years. It very well could be that that, that thousand years starts at the end of the tribulation, which I tend to think that's the way it's going. It reads that way in the text. You know, if you just read it from a logical, simplistic view and not trying to put anything in it, it just reads. Now, now Revelation is not chronological. You can't go chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12 because he switches back. But we're at the end here. There's not much left to debate. There's not much left to do except transition in to, the, to eternity. So that millennial kingdom falls in there somewhere, as best I can tell. And... uh so in looking back at this, and he, and he said, and the rest, of the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are up. Now, who do you think he's talking about there? Ones that are lost. Everybody lost will stay dead for the thousand years because the judgment comes next in chapter 19. And, and, and the key to that is everybody, it's all going to be set straight someday. Everybody who's ever despised God, cursed God, rejected God, evil, they're all going to be resurrected. Their souls are going to be united with a resurrected body, whatever that looks like. And they're going to stand before him. And then it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And he will cast them into, into, into hell for eternity. It's one of the things we don't like to talk about in church today. But there is an eternal hell. And we'll look at a couple of passages here in just a minute that deals with that. And it's one or two choices. And I mean, you know, there's, there's no other way around that. <laughs> the way I read it, yes, ma'am, it is. Oh, you got pastors in mega churches now that, that, that skate around it. All right, he said, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have been part of the first resurrection. I think he's talking about all believers there. I don't see how he could be talking about anybody else but everybody. Part of them resurrected, all of them resurrected somewhere before, mid-trib, whatever. And then the saints that died in the tribulation, he just resurrects them too. 
because they've stood the test of time. So, because he's talking about blessed are all those. And uh, then the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests and gods of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So again, you see these saints reigning. Now, the second death he's talking about there, that's, that's the death into eternal hell. That's for the unsaved. He said it has no power over them. It's been taken care of. So when you look at that passage, to me, I think that it pretty well explains itself as you're walking through it. Now, down to verses 7 through 10, it gets kind of interesting here. He said, when a thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out and deceive the nations to the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That has an Old Testament reference if you start digging back into that. But it's, it's, it's evil and it's, it's people warring against God and his people. He said, in number, they're like the sand of the seashore. Well, what I'm thinking here is it's this mass number of people at the end of the thousand years. Some people take this battle and put it with the battle in chapter 19. They say it's all the same thing. But my millennial view won't let me do that because this comes at the end of a thousand years. So who knows what it is? Well, it could be. But see, you know, everybody said Russia was going to be the thing. Now Russia's nobody. So uh, last week we talked about it. You, know, you dried up the Euphrates for the kings from the east. I mean, they know who's coming against them eventually by, by geography, but you don't know who it is. But I think Gog and Magog, I, I see all this after the thousand-year reign from my view, the how I view the millennium. In other words, if, if Christ said he reigns for a thousand years and then he turns him loose, well, who's Gog and Magog at the end of a thousand years? Who has? He's just really talking about the evil masses of the world because one commentator read took it back to the Old Testament references to that and, and coming against Israel and constantly being the enemy of Israel. So I don't read that into any particular person the way I, in any particular area the way I see it. You know, I, I, at least I don't know what the connection would be there. But, but the mass number of them is what amazes you, that they'll be like the sand of the seashore. They're going to come out of an environment living 1,000 years with a holy God with no influence of Satan. Now, they may have free will to, you know, sin, but Satan's not there to influence it. Satan's not there to drive it. And yet, when they turn him loose, when they turn him loose, he still deceives them when they turn back to him, which is it's just hard to believe. Yeah, I think, I think more than anything, it, it's just referring to... Uh, no, it's just referring to the evil of the world that follows Satan in coming against Israel. And, and the reason he uses Gog and Magog, because you're talking about John, he knows Old Testament Scripture. And he knows in Old Testament... See, he don't know about Armageddon. But he knows Old Testament Scripture, and Gog and Magog was an enemy, was, you know, was a diabolical enemy of Israel, and they used that term to describe it. And I'll dig into that a little bit more. I just didn't get back into the terms of that. That'd be about, that, that's exactly the way I see it. I didn't, that's a good, that's a good set. What kind of Bible is that? So, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I view that. I think that's all he can be talking about. And again, if it's, if it's before the thousand years, I see it as after. And, and I can say that's just like flipping a coin. That's, that's kind of my view of what's happening there. But here's the thing. He said they marched across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of God's people. They tried this once a thousand years ago and it didn't work. So they're going to try it again. And this time's a little bit different, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false, false, false prophet had already been thrown. And they were tormented for night, for day and night, forever and ever. And that's eternity. So 
He's been dealt with. Now, one of the things that I want to look at here in just a minute is a biblical hell. And I want to touch on this just a second because obviously that's where he is. But Revelation 14, 10, and 11, and he's talking about here, and he said, uh, actually in verse 9, he said, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Then Matthew 25:41 and 46, just some good verses to know if somebody wants to talk to you about hell. Matthew 25:41 and 46, and then he will say these on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, he says this. He said, Then they'll go away to eternal, eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And I think I had one more here I wanted to share with if I had it. Mark 9, 43 and 48. Yeah, this is, this is the one right here that uh, will make you think a little bit. Mark 9, 43 and 48. I might just read all the way through that. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better you to enter life maimed with two hands than to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, you can't, you can't escape that, that, in particular when you're reading Revelation, even Satan himself, God's going to put everybody in their just place. And we're not going to have time to get into the white throne judgment tonight. But, uh, but we're going to see there that everybody, it all gets taken care of in the end. And we ask through life, why does this, how does that, this person never pay any attention to God and had a great life? It all comes to course someday. And it all comes to an end someday. So, but when we look at this passage here tonight, Regardless of what our millennial view was, I mean, there's some basic things to look at. You know, Jesus is back in control of this world. God promised he would be. He's come. He's been victorious. Satan has been judged. Satan has been locked away eternally where he can't hurt anybody. God's people, we're victorious with him. And we're with him in eternity for heaven. That's about to take place. And we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth coming. And God has delivered on his promises. So regardless of how we see the millennial view coming through there, the bottom line is, and is, as we've been trying to teach this on the old law, is what is the theological principle? We are on the right side. Our God, and as long as we honor him and, and, and stay with him, then we're going to be safe, we're going to be saved, and we're going to be eternally blessed with him. And let him worry about taking care of this deceitful world around us. Our only job is, is to, to take the gospel to the world as long as we're here. And I think that's the call he's always given us, that's the call he's continuing to give us. And he's very capable of taking care of this stuff in the end, as you see. Because last week we saw the saints come back. They didn't have to do anything. He spoke the word, and that was over. Here the fire got them. He didn't have to do anything. And, and so our God is capable. And uh, even though 
even though we fight those battles with Satan, and even though he is powerful, and even though he can damage us badly, if we keep our position with our God right, then he can keep him in check. So regardless of where your view is on that, you know, we come out on the winning side, and that's the best part, But I think. Any questions, any comments from there? Next week we'll get into the White Throne Judgment, and we may have time to finish it next week, and we might not. We've got a couple chapters, so. If you have any questions, bring them in or send them to me, email them to me or email them to Deborah and she'll give them to me. <laughs> no, I'm just, but uh, I don't know a lot about it, but I like to research it and talk about it. So, Okay, well, we, 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 we're getting there.